You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, the ninth chapter, and we're going to be looking at verses 32 to 35. You'll find this on page 918 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 35. Hear the word of God. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Well, when we last heard about Peter in chapter 8, he had returned to Jerusalem with John. They had been in Samaria to oversee the revival that had been started by Philip. And now we meet up with him as he's engaged in this itinerant ministry. It says Peter went here and there among them all. And so he's laboring in the coastal cities of the Mediterranean Sea. And there was a community of believers in a place called Lydda, which was not far from the coast. It was built on a cliff, and from what I've read, from there, and an observer could actually see the city of Jerusalem. And among the Christians at Lydda, Peter found a paralytic named Aeneas. And from his name, I think we can conclude that he was either a Hellenist Jew or a Greek believer. It's a Greek name, Aeneas. And perhaps he suffered a stroke and he was unable to move his body. We're not exactly sure. But since Peter didn't try to elicit faith from him, we assume that he was a believer, a Christian. Besides, Peter mentioned Jesus' name as if Aeneas knew exactly what he was talking about. So this Christian man was bedridden and had been so for eight long years. Eight years. He'd been lying there with no hope of getting up or ever walking again. And Aeneas was utterly dependent on the mercy and care of other people. They had to do everything for him. And also, there is no indication here that he had asked for healing from Aeneas. And perhaps it was due to the long cultivated indifference to the world around him. We don't know. I don't think it's too much to conclude that this man had probably given up. Eight years, it's a long time. He had no hope of being healed. He may have felt as if his life was now over. He was simply waiting for death to take him away from this miserable existence day after day. And I think he was wrong to view things that way, but Aeneas was not thinking clearly. 
Let's face it, his affliction was severe. And to be healed, he needed a miracle. The physicians couldn't do anything for him. His condition apparently was incurable. And so this was the condition of the man when Peter first encountered him. And in his travels, the Apostle Peter then visits the saints who lived at Lydda, as I said, a coastal town. And it's interesting to me that Luke describes the Lydian Christians as saints. They're saints. <laughs> we typically think of the elite, the spiritual elite who are saints, right? They have to be voted in. But as far as I can tell, Luke only utilized this description four times in two volumes, and it is derived from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy or set apart. And what it means simply is this, that as followers of Jesus, we are set apart for God. We're consecrated as holy. Not because we are holy in ourselves. We know by painful experience how unholy we can be, right? But because in Christ, we are considered by God as holy and set apart. And in the text, it was among these kinds of people, saints, that Peter was ministering. And without being prompted, he says... Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And it seemed to be entirely out of the blue. Apparently there were no preliminaries as far as we can tell. There was no appeal from Aeneas. There was no question from Peter, just the declaration. And if there was any previous discussion, Luke didn't think it was worthy to include. So the important thing here was that the ascended Christ was willing and able to heal. <laughs> and I believe this cure was more than an act of mercy, although it simply it was simply that. It was a clear demonstration of Jesus' power over diseases. There are afflictions of the body of the mind, of the emotions, and of the soul, as you know. No affliction, regardless of what it is, can withstand the healing power of Christ. And we know from Scripture that disease came into the world by sin. And as sin is eradicated, so is disease. Spurgeon puts it this way. Having forgiven as a judge, our Lord then cures as a physician. What a wonderful thing. In the life to come, we're going to be entirely free of the miseries of this life. Free. That's what we read this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, the judge, and who heals all your diseases, the physician. And there's no disease of soul or body that can baffle our physician. Jesus can heal the disease of the body and he can heal the sickness of the soul. And all kinds of disorders he's able and willing to cure by divine power. It's an incredible thing. And if we will but trust him, he'll begin that healing process even now. And there are at least three features of this miraculous healing that I believe are significant. The first one is this. This healing was instant. Peter says Jesus heals you, not that Jesus will heal you. 
The man had regained the use of his limbs immediately. There was no delay. It had been a long affliction. But the length of time cannot thwart the power of God. When he extends his mercy and grace, nothing can hinder him. Nothing. Such was the power of Jesus that Aeneas was healed instantaneously. It was very much like the hemorrhaging woman who touched his cloak. You remember that? She touched it and she was healed at once. There was no pause. She just touched and immediately was cured. In the same way, Jesus spoke, or Peter spoke Jesus' name, and the paralytic was instantly healed. And can you imagine the shock that he must have felt as he regained movement in his limbs for the first time in eight years? Think of the thrill that rushed through those mended nerves and muscles of his limbs as he began to move them. It was instant. Secondly, the healing was easy. Because it was accomplished by the mere mention of Jesus' name. So severe had been this man's paralysis that he spent eight years lying on a pallet. Doesn't matter. Peter simply spoke in the name of Jesus and it was done because there's power in his name. It cannot be manipulated by men, but when his name is spoken by his apostle for his glory, it's powerful. And the same thing happened when Peter healed the lame beggar. Do you remember in chapter 3? He says to this man, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And what did he do? He walked. At that moment, infinite divine power brought healing to his body. And the Bible says God spoke and the cosmos appeared. And here it says Christ's name was spoken and the man was healed. I want you to imagine with me briefly a king. A king sitting on his throne, dispatching his eager attendant. He simply nods. The servant departs. He goes and he declares his master's will. And on the part of anybody who hears the word of the king, there is no hesitation. It's done. So it is with the king of kings. His apostles speak in his name. It's done. Easy. Indeed, all creation stands ready to do the bidding of its master. You remember when Jesus spoke a word and the storm was still. It was incredible. He's sleeping in the back of the boat in the middle of a nor'easter. They wake him up because they think they're going to drown. And he says, be still. And they say to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And rest assured, Jesus is more than a man because he does what only God can do. It's instant. It's easy. And third, it's complete because there remained no hint of paralysis. From the moment that Peter mentioned Jesus, the paralytic was healed. Totally. From tip to toe, completely healed. He gets up, he makes his own bed. Because Jesus is not in the business of partial cures. He doesn't leave half-mended people. We read in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He's not in the business of partial cures. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up the wounds of the, of the afflicted. He strengthens the weak so that the paralytic could do for himself what others have been doing for him for eight long years. Isn't that what we need from the Lord? Instant, easy, complete healing. And you say to me, well, pastor, I've been afflicted for years and I have yet to be healed. And it's not easy. Yes, you have been afflicted. And we are not promised a complete cure in this life. But such is the heart of Jesus and such is the nature of his kingdom that it will come. It may be at the moment of death. It may be upon Jesus's return, but you will be fully and forever healed. Whether it's body or soul. Instant, easy, complete. In the twinkling of an eye, with a shout, it'll happen. And even in this life, there is a measure of healing that can be experienced because God blesses the use of medicines and he gives grace to sanctify the soul. So it's an incredible thing that took place, and I think it's noteworthy that Aeneas did not hesitate to respond in faith. Did you ever think of that? It says here he immediately arose. That took faith. It was a bona fide miracle, but he had to move. <laughs> and he had no difficulty. For eight long years, he'd been incapable of moving any part of his body. Maybe his head, I don't know. But why would anybody think, at the moment that Peter said that, that he could start moving his limbs? The only reason for even trying to move his limbs was simply that Peter declared it. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. It was an act of faith on Aeneas's part to actually rise and make his bed. So not only God's spirit was at work in his body, but we discovered that the spirit was at work in his soul, giving him faith. He believed Peter and he stood up without anybody helping him. And you have to agree that it required an act of faith for him to do that. His body was miraculously healed. His faith was strengthened to get out of that bed because for years he'd been laying there thinking and meditating and remembering what it was like to walk. And now for the first time in eight years, he was able to get up and make his own bed. Can you imagine his exhilaration, just to move. <laughs> For so long, he had been incapable of performing the simplest tasks, brush his teeth, comb his hair. Imagine the feelings of joy and gratitude and picture the thrill that began to throb through the crowd. Look at that guy. And he went away carrying the bed that had been used to carry him. And the sudden and miraculous healing of this paralytic then led to the conversion of many. The effect on his neighbors was electrifying as it spread for miles. And they recognized this man whom they had seen lying motionless for years. 
Perhaps, we're not told, but perhaps he had been positioned by his family and friends to beg for a living. They'd seen him. But the news of this miracle reached the ears of the inhabitants, and the impact of his healing was decisive and almost universal. The residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Scores of people converted. The name of Jesus glorified. But let me, let me remind you that the miracle itself didn't convert anybody. Because God can't change or God doesn't change by raw power. People turned to the Lord by the gospel, which the miracle confirmed. That's what happened. Because Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the healing of this paralytic simply attested the truth of Jesus' claims. And it also confirmed Peter's apostolic authority to represent Christ. What an amazing text. So let's glorify Jesus who has ultimate power over all and every disease. The instantaneous healing of Aeneas proved the superiority of Christ. This healing, I think, is reminiscent of the paralytic that was lowered by his four friends. You remember him? They couldn't get into the house. They dug a hole in the roof, let him down. And Jesus said at that time, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes accused him of blasphemy. So to prove that he had authority to forgive sins, what did he do? He heals the paralytic. The man rises, he immediately picks up his bed, and he goes out on his own. And it was a clear display of Christ's deity that he does have authority to forgive sins. The healing of Aeneas is no different. Jesus exercises divine power. And it's a clear manifestation of his deity as the Lord of heaven and earth. Because you see, God ordinarily works through means, but he can perform miracles. At his pleasure, we're taught, he is free to work without or above or against means. He can do what he wants. And no one else but God can do that. He alone has the power to perform miracles. And yet here, in Jesus' name, instantly, easily, completely, a paralytic is healed? What are we to make of that? What are we to make of that? I suppose you could disbelieve it. It didn't happen. But then you'd have to reject the entire Bible as the word of God, because if this isn't true, what else is not true? I think Luke is a credible witness, and there was no incentive for him to lie. So what we find here is that this miraculous healing was a demonstration of divine power. And so showing himself to be God, Jesus proves all the rest of his claims. Listen to what he said. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's a lofty claim. It's a claim that no mere man should ever presume to make. In the words of C.S. Lewis, this man is either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. 
He says, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. Pretty presumptuous if you're a mere man. He calls himself the bread of life and the true vine and the light of the world and the judge of all mankind. He said that. He has authority to forgive sin. He has authority over disease and devils and death. And then he claimed that I and the Father are one. Equal. And this text makes that clear. So the question this morning is, what will you do about it? As far as I can see, there are three options. You can reject him, as many have. You can accept him, as many have. Or you can just plain ignore him and be indifferent. The scribes and the Pharisees, for the most part, rejected him. And he said they died in their sins. The the early disciples accepted him and they became heirs of eternal life. But you know something? The vast majority of people across the world, they ignore him. They're indifferent to him. They think that they can sit on the fence without any consequence. But in truth, no decision is the same thing as a rejection, right? Didn't Jesus say, whoever is not with me is against me? This text makes clear that he is who he claimed to be. The question is, what will you do about it? But I, sense, I think that since I believe this text shows Jesus to be equal with God, let's worship him with a whole heart. I want you to listen to the charge that King David gave to his son Solomon when he was ready to ascend the throne. This is in part what David said to his rising son. He said, Solomon, my son, Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. So Solomon was to love God warmly and sincerely and freely and deliberately. And if he hadn't married a thousand women, he probably would have done so. It's the same charge that's given to every Christian who follows Jesus. Every one. We are to love and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. And it's the sum and substance of personal and practical religion. The profession and the baptism that you saw this morning, that's what it means. He wants our undivided devotion. No wavering, no compromise. It's no use having one foot in the church and the other foot in the world. David was exhorting him to sincerity and understanding. You be honest and conscientious. Not with a half heart, not with your eyes closed, not mechanically. The great command is to love him with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now, let's face it. We can't be perfect. We're going to sin. But we can be sincere. And we have to know what we're doing and why we're doing it because God loves a cheerful giver and he wants our consent when we worship. If we are compelled, if we say this is drudgery, how is he glorified by that? Pharaoh was the one who forced compliance. God is the one who wants us to be free and voluntary. 
Why? Why would he want us to be free? Because that proves the sufficiency of his grace. Just think of Job, right? The whole point was Satan said Job is a mercenary. He's just in it for the benefits. And God said, okay, I'll prove to you that my grace is sufficient. Strip him of everything. Take away his health. Take away his children. Even interrupt his marriage. And God's grace was sufficient. Job's willing worship at his lowest point proved that grace was real. And the free and voluntary worship of his people proved the reality of his grace. Psalm 110 your people will offer themselves freely on the day of their power, on your power. Freely. That's why we're here. And the Lord searches all hearts and he knows all thoughts and all the secrets of our souls are open and laid bare before Christ. So let's pray that we can worship with a whole heart and a willing mind. But you know something? Seriousness and sincerity do not depend on the state of your feelings. I feel like I have to remind ourselves of this time and again with the culture in which we live. Seriousness and sincerity don't depend on the state of your feelings. You may not feel sincere. You may say to yourself, this is the last thing I want to do on a Sunday morning. And I feel like a hypocrite. But what is the general course of your life? What is your conduct? What are your habits? If Christ is your treasure, then the general course of your life will make that plain. Do you pray when it's hard? I don't feel like it. Just about every day, I don't feel like it. It's hard. But do you pray when it's hard? That's one of the hardest things in the Christian life. Do you love your neighbor when he or she is difficult? And we've all experienced that. Do you worship when you don't feel like it? That's serious religion. That's sincere worship. That's true service. You're denying yourself, denying your feelings, and choosing Christ. What have you decided about Christ? Young people, what have you decided about Christ? Where do you invest your life? It's not how you feel, but it's what you've decided that makes all the difference. You may not feel like a Christian, but if you trust him, you are a Christian. Just like you may not feel like an American this morning, but that doesn't change the fact that you are, right? Your state, your condition, your privileges, your responsibilities remain intact. It's no different with your Christian faith and your position in Christ. If my eternal destiny rested upon my feelings, you should feel sorry for me. My feelings are like this. But my salvation rests upon the Lord Jesus Christ in whom I've placed my trust. And he doesn't lie to me. He'll never lie. If you come to him, he'll never cast you out, ever. Sometimes I wake up and I feel awful. I don't know about you, but I don't feel spiritual at all. 
But I know and I believe and I remind myself and I embrace that the gospel promise of Jesus is true. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He promised. And he promised to give me eternal life. And I take him at his word. That's where I'm going. That's where you're going. He's not a liar. Jesus tells the truth. And I can trust whatever he says. So don't worry if your feelings lag behind your decision. That's normal. Make Jesus and his kingdom the delight of your life. Seek him first. And look forward to an eternal blessedness in heaven. And let's consider real briefly what this reveals about the nature of his kingdom. Because his kingdom is characterized by righteousness, peace, joy, and wholeness. You've often heard the term shalom. It's the Jewish notion of wholeness, of peace. It denotes far more than the mere cessation of hostilities. Shalom has to do with Fullness, wholeness, richness, blessing. And the Lord blesses and he keeps you and he looks at you and he gives you shalom. That's his kingdom. That's the promise of his kingdom. And all the needs of his people are met. There's no hardship. In this world, there are real hardships. There are real hardships in this life. And that can make life on earth very difficult. Paralysis, what they used to call palsy, is a devastating condition. And as we both know, people can endure paralysis in a variety of forms, right? There can be physical paralysis, like this poor man. There can be emotional paralysis because of guilt. There can be mental paralysis because of fear. There can be personal paralysis because of depression, Affliction, disappointment, discouragement, overwork, tension. In Christ's kingdom, there is the promise of complete and lasting cure. He restores the knowledge of God. He restores fellowship with God, and it's a kingdom of shalom. In heaven, we'll be forever free from all trouble, sorrow, misery, and shame, because he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. And he says, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore because the former things have passed away. That's the blessedness of heaven. So let's render worship. Let's offer prayers. Let's perform our service in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, who is worthy to be praised. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his healing power and the kingdom that is a kingdom of shalom. And we pray this morning that everyone who has considered this amazing miracle will trust in Christ and be encouraged to look forward to a blessed eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For listening, for more information or to connect with us, visit us at redeemerohio.org.